Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in chapter two of Jonah, and today we're going to look at distressed praying and relentless grace. Distressed praying and relentless grace. Let me start with the question that kind of sets our mind on the topic for the day today. It might seem like an odd question for a pastor to begin a sermon with, but I want you to think about it. Is there any area of your life where you have tension with God today? Tension with God. Friends, we don't want to come into the room and ignore or deny and put on airs as if everything is right when it is not. We'll find out today that God is bigger than our problems, even when he is our problem. He's bigger than that. And he wants to know, is there anything in your life tempting you to flee from God today? Pressing upon you to run from him. Jonah is an amazing study for us. Let's get to it. Let me go to chapter two. I'm gonna read the 10 verses of chapter two for us and then we'll continue with the message. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. Now, if you're new to Life Point, you may be sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, these people think God speaks to animals. And we do, because his word says that he does. He created them just as he created us, and we do believe that God uses a great fish in a man's life in this whole story. Chapter two really finds Jonah in a bad place, and he's doing the only thing that he knows to do, pray. He's praying. He called out to the one, the only one he knew could help, and it tells us that God heard him. This is the way he introduces the whole chapter. 
that seems simple enough, right? I mean, when you're in a bad place, if you'll just pray, God will hear you, and that's enough. But friends, that message is far too simplistic for Jonah's prayer. So much more is taking place here that we need to be aware of. And of course, if the chapter had begun and Jonah prayed to the Lord, maybe in some small way, that simple message would have sufficed and we could let it stop at that. But the fact of the matter is, the first verse says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. We've got to do a little more digging into the belly of the fish to really find out what has taken place and what's going on with Jonah. And if we're going to understand his prayer, we must remember his situation that produced it because so much more is taking place here. You know, that, that, that first verse, it reminds me of something that we must be vigilantly to, vigilant to constantly fight against. And that's the impulse of settling for religion. The impulse of settling for religion as if God will be okay with it if we just do our religious duty. Here's the difference between religion and Christianity, friends. Religion offers simplistic responses that not only don't remember our situations when we most need God, but forsake those situations. And they turn us from looking to God to looking to some false hope in a vain, hollow activity only. You say, what are you talking about? Well, what I'm trying to do is encourage you that, that God, even if you've identified the tension in your life with God today, God's not afraid of hard stuff. He's not afraid of those things. And, and so often we reduce it to less and in so doing, we don't give God the opportunity to work out what he is working in us. That's what I want us to do with Jonah. He begins by calling out to the Lord from his helpless state. It tells us he prayed both out of distress and from the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is a word in the Old Testament used, which is a reference to a place of the dead, not a place you want to go. It's not just a place like a graveyard, but it has the inference of far more than that, bad place of death where death rules and reigns, just a place you don't want to be. And so we know from this first statement of, of the way he prayed out of his distress from the belly of Sheol, there was an internal battle that was going on in him. He was distressed in his spirit and his soul, but he was also distressed situationally. He was in a place that he didn't have any control over getting out of, the ocean, and he was sinking fast. This put him in great turmoil, turmoil and led him to a really bad place. And he acknowledges this, that he began to pray for one reason, because he knew he was as good as dead. When he refers to the depth of the sea and his plea for help, that's what he's telling us. Listen, I was a dead man sinking. That's all I was. And all I could think was, I got to pray I've got to pray. This is one of those moments where Jonah's whole life was 
flashing before his eyes, if you will, when every memory of life was crossing his mind and, and we'll see that even those last moments were kind of slowing down and he was seeing more insight within them and he was doing this because he thought he was going to die. He thought he was going to die. And with the thought of his death, here's what he learned. Jonah learns that the price of his rebellion is death. You say, what rebellion? Well, Jonah chapter one is Jonah running in sinful rebellion. And the reason he's in the sea dying in chapter two is because God has pursued him and he's had to be thrown out of the ship that was being torn apart by the waves of the sea and now he's in a place where his rebellion has led them and that's where he learns that the price of his rebellion is death. But he also knows this, that from his low place, God hears his voice and answers his prayer. That is encouraging, friends. That is encouraging. Look at verse three with me. In verse three, Jonah paints a picture of his death, of his burial, and of his grave. He's cast into the deep, the, the heart of the seas, it says, where the floodwaters now begin to surround him and the waves and the billows begin to pass over him and wash over him. Like the light of a tomb from that era where the, the body has been placed in the grave. And if you were on the inside, obviously a dead body wouldn't see this, but he's describing this for us. As the, as the stone was rolled over the tomb, that slither of light was was continually disappearing until it was completely gone and the tomb would be sealed. That's what he's describing here. The waters were washing over as he sunk into the deep darkness of the sea, the very depths of them. And he acknowledges something in verse three that is very interesting. You cast me into the deep. He's talking about God. God is the one that put him there. But wait a minute, Jonah. You're the one that said when you were in the boat, you've got to throw me over. And you told the sailors that they would have to do it. And that's what happened. But now Jonah's telling us in this psalm, this prayer he's writing, that he knows good and well, it was God who threw him into the sea. Neither his own decision nor that of the sailors. You see, if this verse teaches us anything, friends, it exposes yet again the hollow nature of religious cliches. It tells us this, that maybe you've heard the cliche, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. Well, the story of Jonah says, that's a lie. That's a lie. God will always put his people where he needs them for the purpose that he has ordained for them to be there. And for Jonah, Jonah knew he was running from God and Jonah recognized that God put him in the very place that he thought was going to be his deathbed because that's where God wanted him. You see, friends, God always works by any means necessary to empower us to obey his command. Verse four, he moves on to acknowledge that he's driven away from God's sight. Now, verse four is kind of an apex, if you will, a really high point, or shall we say low point, 
It might be better to say it that way because it's definitely a low point. But in the literary structure of his prayer, verse three kind of builds up and verse four is the apex of the prayer. And verse five and six will parallel verse three in the description, even as it provides a few more details. But in verse four here, we see this low point. Jonah is dead. He knows it. He's determined only one thing will happen. He says, I am driven away from the sight of God. Yet, he says, I will look again upon your holy temple. Now, lest you believe, man, Jonah made a great decision at a really critical time. Don't say that. Really what's happening here is Jonah is calling out in desperation. He has no idea if this is going to work. It's just the only thing that comes to his mind. His words are not a statement of confidence, but more of just doing what he knew to do, even though he didn't know if it would work. You see, friends, I want to expose another religious cliche that so often is vain and shallow or even hollow for us, if not rightly applied. And it's simply this, that prayer is powerful. Prayer in and of itself is not powerful. God is powerful. Only prayer that is to God has any power at all. You go, well, now, wait a minute. Let's not split hairs over this. I will split hairs over this, and I'll tell you why. We've already learned this. In Jonah chapter 1, every mariner on the ship who knew what they were doing, who was scared to death that they were all going to die. They were polytheists. They worshiped any and every God. It tells us in chapter one, they offered every prayer that they could conceivably think of and were telling everyone else on the ship, you do the same and not one answer came. Tell me prayer is powerful when you pray to a dead God. It's not. It doesn't make any difference in your life. And any feeling better because of it that you have is deception and false hope. But when you pray to the God who lives, he is powerful. And that's what Jonah is doing. God is the power of Jonah's prayer. Every prayer that God hears and answers is by his power, no matter where it originates. Did you hear that? Remember what I said about verse four? It's the high point of the literary structure. It is the low point of Jonah's life. The depths of what? Sheol, the place of death. Who hears Jonah in the place of death? God. Where is God? Well, Jonah says in verse four, you are in your holy temple. Do you see the vast separation of Jonah and God here? God is high and exalted on his throne in heaven and Jonah has sunk to the depths of the dead. He calls out to God and not because of his calling out because it wouldn't be anything more than a but God hears him and maybe even more miraculous, understands him. And then he answers him. And he answers him. Friends, Jonah prayed not because he felt like it, but it was a last ditch effort. And he was heard because of who he prayed to and answered. 
desperate. That's how Jonah was praying. Desperate to get God's attention, Jonah's prayer reflects a turning of his situation. A turning of his situation. Here's the key I want you to understand. This prayer does not yet represent a turning of Jonah, only of the situation. We'll appeal to that later. Verse five and six, as I said, repeats what we saw in verse three, but with a little more detail and a little of a further elaboration on his burial in the sea. He says, as a stone covers the tomb's entrance, so waters have closed in upon him. The deep is surrounding him. And he says, the ocean himself is opening up to the depths of Jonah, welcoming him in and shrouding him in his own burial cloths as the seaweed wraps around his head the sea is going come on in man come on in we've got plenty of fish down here that'll feed on you and they welcome him to his own death Jonah was convinced that the sea's bottom would be his final resting place but instead of his final resting place what he would learn is the depth of the sea would become the place of God's rescue You see, God brought Jonah's life up from the pit of his rebellious ruin, but not before Jonah reached the bottom, even if only in his mind and heart. You see, friends, the place of God's rescue will always be the place that is the end of you. Until you come to a point in your life where you realize and you acknowledge that you have no more answers, you have no more wisdom, you have no more strength, intellect, or capacity, or capability in any shape, form, manner, or extent that you can save or be righteous in your own life. God will never be of any use to you. But when you come to the end of yourself in all of those ways, God will be the only one who will be of use for you. Because at that moment, At the end of yourself, you will find the beginning of God. The beginning of God. And that's where Jonah found God. Finally, verses 7 through 9, Jonah reflects on the Lord's salvation. When his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord and his prayer reached him in his holy temple. And and Jonah begins, here's where he begins to reflect, like the last incidents of, or or the last uh, moments of his life from being on the ship now into the water. He's, He's reminded of the sailors who were crying out to all of their dead idols. And and he says this, that, that, that it is vanity to worship dead idols. It is vanity to forsake God's steadfast love. He's not only reminded of the sailors' prayers that weren't answers, he's reflecting on his own vain actions that those who know God think they can run from God and hide in a place where God doesn't know they're at. God knew exactly where Jonah was at. He was following him the whole time. But his words do provide for us a warning today of anyone who thinks they might could do the same, of anyone who's got a tension with God in their heart and angst with God an unreconciled situation or circumstance that's pressing upon them to just run away and be done and find your own way. Jonah will tell you this, there is no way other than God's way. But God will be found 
if you will turn to him. This reminder turns Jonah to give thanks to the Lord and to commit to the vow that he made because of what he knows of the Lord. Was this a vow made in the instant of desperation? No, I don't think that's the vow Jonah's talking about. I think it's the vow that Jonah is reminded of when he first committed to the Lord earlier in his life to serve the Lord with his whole life. You see, in this instant, Jonah was running from not only from God's salvation for him, but from God's call as a prophet upon him. And everything Jonah was doing was in denial, not only of his very being, but of his vocation and his whole livelihood. He was denying and forsaking all of that and running from God. Jonah remembered that, Lord, I made a vow to you and I've tried desperately not to keep it. I want to keep that vow to you now if I can. The Bible tells us that at the end of verse 9, end of verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And with that, we see again God's sovereign rule over creation demonstrated Verse 17 of chapter one, the last thing we see when Jonah's hurled into the sea, before the prayer and all of that, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah as his source of rescue. And then we don't hear or see anything else from God in chapter two until verse 10, that when Jonah had prayed to the Lord, how did he know that the Lord had heard him? Because the fish listened to him and delivered him where God wanted him to be. You see that statement of the fish vomiting him up onto dry land, that word for vomit is typically a word that expresses in the Old Testament God's judgment for sin. God's judgment on sin. And the truth is God judges all sin and God's judgment on sin is always present in every act of his salvation. Now, if we, talk, if we thought about this for a moment, you might say, well, but pastor, every time I sin, I don't get hit with a lightning bolt. That's right, you don't. It's not always immediate and tit for tat and that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, Jonah was on a ship in a great tempest and he didn't get hit by lightning either, even when we all knew he fully deserved it, Right? Does that mean that God didn't judge his sin? No, we are seeing here in a literary fashion, the story is telling us there is God's judgment on sin. Then where is it? That's what we ought to be asking. Where is it? We're going to see that in just a moment. God saved Jonah by sending the fish to swallow him and to vomit him onto dry land. And that's the way chapters one and chapters two end with God's salvation. God gets the last word, he saves. You see, friends, Jonah's salvation and deliverance included not an ignoring of his rebellion. God just, God didn't say, oh, it's not a big deal. You totally profaned my name in your act of rebellion. It's not a big deal. I'll just forget this one. No, God never forgets sin. But friends, his salvation and deliverance is what I would call a cloaked judgment for his rebellion. A cloaked judgment. And we'll see that more fully in a moment. Here's what I want you to understand from this passage today and take away with you. God is worthy of your faith and obedience. 
God is worthy of your faith and obedience. And in steadfast love, he pursues you with relentless grace to save. He pursues you with relentless grace to save. You know, the the whole story of Jonah is, it's a fun study, but these are not easy lessons for us to learn. A psalm of a man saved from death. It's a prayer that he offered in desperation and, and, and it's a man in the consequences of his own sinful rebellion. Well, what do we often say? You made your bed, you can sleep in it too, right? But that's not what God says to us. Jonah confronts us with the reality of God responding to us in our sinful rebellion when we don't like the commands of God for our life. That's what this story is about. But lest we relieve the tension too early, all is not well between Jonah and God, even though Jonah's standing on the seashore now. And we need to recognize this, that Jonah did not repent on his own. He just cried out in desperation. And and it was God in his steadfast love who pursued Jonah with a relentless grace to turn him from his rebellion. And Jonah recognizes this, and we should not miss this. You see, friends, we know God is not finished working on, is not finished working in Jonah. Two more chapters to the book, and we will continue to see God's work in this man's life. And we also know that Jonah has not rooted out all of his rebellion from his heart. Jonah is a man who has tension with God. And yet God saved him. And yet God saved him. Jonah was wrestling with deep issues, tensions that he has with God. But what he found to be true of God is that God relates to us in a way that is true to his nature and his character, not in reacting to our situation or rebellion. Praise God. I've given him more opportunities than I care to admit. And I'm sure many of you have as well. Friends, we would do well in this passage to learn more about God than just to focus on Jonah. What does this passage teach us about God? Well, it teaches us that God pursues us even in our sinful rebellion. Romans 5, 8 teaches us that at just the right time, while we were still in our sin, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. God's pursuing you, friends. His steadfast love is for you. God hears and he answers the prayers of his children regardless of our situation or place. There is no place that you are too far. There is no force that can mute your voice from God's ear. What could be of greater encouragement to us? We learn this. God disciplines his children because he loves us, not in spite of his love for us. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 teach us this. Jonah recognizes that it was God who sent the storm. It was God who threw him into the sea. It was God who sent the fish. It was God who spit the fish or had the fish vomit him back up onto the uh, the sands of the shore. And until Jonah stopped running and started swimming, nothing would calm down, not only in the sea, but in his life, 
You see, friends, God's relentless grace is not about giving just some element of good, throwing a crumb to a dog, if you will. God's purpose for us is to transform us into the image of his son. He's the only one that can do that. And the work that he has for us is carried out by the word he gives to us to fulfill the will that he has for us, of which his word tells us it is a good will, it is a pleasing will, it is a perfect will. It's just not one we always understand or agree with. We also learn that God rescues his children for the glory of his name. God did not rescue Jonah to put him back on the, on the shore and go, now you be a good boy, you get along with your life now. No, God put Jonah back on the shore because he had given him a command that he had yet to obey. God put Jonah back on the shore of the sea because he had a glory for his life that had not yet come to fruition. That's why God saves. That's why God loves us because he has a glory for our life that is for his name. God doesn't save you just to improve your life, to increase your pleasures, to justify your rationales. It is the glory of his name for which he has saved you and redeemed you. Friends, God doesn't rescue us from every situation. But the message of Jonah reminds us that he does rescue us in the love of Jesus Christ for his glory in all things. We learn that God is sovereign over all and that he is steadfast in his love. There is nothing in all of creation that he does not command with his word. And there is no one of whom his love does not remain steadfast for. Even in rebellion, Jonah testifies that he knows this to be true of God. You know, there's an interesting absence in this book, an absence that's very familiar to you and I. So often when we feel far from God, when we get our life into circumstances and situations, even when we know we are the cause of it, what is one of the most common questions that we ask, where are you, God? Jonah never asked that. <laughs> Why? Because he knew God was right on his heels the whole time. He could feel him in the warmth along the back of his neck that God was bearing down on him, coming for him at the whole time. And so should every Christian. That's the way we should understand our God. We don't have to ask where he is. He's waiting on us to turn to him, to look to him and to trust in him. Jonah knew God was present the whole time and working for his redemption. If God hadn't been present, Jonah probably would have, he would have never got on the ship for one. He would have had no reason to get on the ship. He wasn't running from anything. He was fully immersed and blinded and deceived in his own pleasures and indulgences. But here's what he says, and this is the most important phrase of the whole book. It is the refrain of Jonah's whole life, of his whole story in the book, and this story overall. He says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, this is not so much Jonah's testimony. Oh, that it were, things could have gone greatly different than they did from the beginning. But rather, it's Jonah's 
confession of submission to the Lord's sovereignty over his life. It's true. It's true to every extent. But the way in which Jonah speaks it is one that we need to understand. You see, Jonah chapter 2 is a psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. In other words, a a psalm is a a song of the OG. It's a song uh, uh, that the old schoolers used to put to music and to sing. And this is how they recited their doctrines and their understandings of God and the things that they were teaching. And this is one of those prayers that, that they would use in that way. But there is something that leaves the reader, you and I, with a sense of tension that all is not fully resolved. Yes, very much so this psalm represents a turning to the Lord. I don't know if, I don't know if he wrote it from within the belly of the fish or if he wrote it after he got out of the belly of the fish, but he's reflecting upon the whole sense of it. And while Jonah says all the right things, note this, he doesn't say everything. You know what he never said? I was wrong. He never said, I'm sorry, God. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have run there. He never says that. His actions turned back to God. But there is no confession of repentance. Friends, there is tension with God Because of Jonah's rebellion. He didn't like God's command. He didn't agree with God's command. And he didn't want to obey God's command. This is the issue we face in Jonah. How do we deal with the tensions of our heart? We have problems with God. In the remainder of our time, I want to offer four lessons from Jonah that we can learn from chapter two that turn us to trust and to obey the Lord. And friends, these aren't good lessons that'll give you a good week this week. These are lessons that'll change your life because of God. Lesson number one is this. Jonah identifies for us our tension with God and it is this, we are not God. We are not God. Sin sets us against God. Sin makes us enemies of God. Sin produces rebellion toward God. But the one thing sin cannot do is make us God. The very thing it promises to you. Most don't claim to be God. I don't meet a lot of people walking around in my everyday life that go, hello, I'm God. Right? But let me tell you this. Every time your heart takes issue with God, it is staking its claim that it wants to be God. Every time, every time. One commentator explains Jonah this way, and I I found this incredibly helpful. The tension of Jonah's life, however, is that he loves Yahweh, but has yet taken serious action against God's intention to offer forgiveness to the violent. Who are the violent? That's Nineveh. They were extremely violent people in that day and time. The tension between his temple piety, talking about Jonah knowing the right words but not having the heart to pray them correctly. The tension between his temple piety and his attitudes towards the unjust world are true to life. 
The tensions represent the honest struggle and even confusion of a person who is not resolved within themselves the incongruities of living in changing and challenging times. And with that sentence, this whole story just got closely personal to all of us who are living in changing and challenging times. And the commentator completes his thought when he says, Jonah's song is a true praise with a hint of protest. (laughs) As if he's got the recipe for rebellion here. Oh, he did everything right. He threw a little obedience in there, just enough to satisfy God, but not too much to challenge his own being. He threw a few prayers in there, a little religious ritual. He even took communion over here a couple of times, and then he dabbled across the top of it a hint of protest. Mm, Sounds like a recipe that I'm familiar with. A hint of protest. That, that phrase is the most convicting phrase to me in everything I've read so far about Jonah. You see, you may not be in full-scale rebellion, friends, but ask yourself this. Is there any hint of protest in your heart with God? Any unresolved issue that's causing you anger or frustration or hurt or bitterness towards God? Is it there? Just a hint. Not too much, just enough. Is there any broken relationship that continually returns to your mind where you've not done all you can do to reconcile, but you don't want to do any more than what you've already done? Is there any part of God's word that when you read it, you don't understand it, you don't like it, you don't agree with it, and you surely have not yet surrendered to him in lieu of it? Let me ask it more simply. Is there any command of God's word in scripture to you that you know of that you willingly have said no and not obeyed? Just simply. These are tensions with God. And friends, do you know where it is that your tension with God, your hint of protest remains in your heart? Because where any hint of protest remains in you will be the very point that rebellion grows from you. The second lesson we learn of Jonah is this. Jonah's refrain, salvation belongs to the Lord, becomes our declaration that God is worthy. God is worthy. Friends, the only way we resolve our tension, our hint of protest is the same way Jonah did, by making our refrain in all things, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is worthy. He is high and exalted. He is seated in his holy temple. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And yes, the God of all creation is the same God who is pursuing us today to forgive us and to cleanse us of our sin and to redeem us to the uttermost. I don't know anybody that doesn't like that part. Here's the part they often flinch at. For the glory of his name and not ours.
You see, God is worthy. He is worthy of us obeying to fulfill any vow that we make, whether we feel like it or not. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know if I need to obey God in this way. I'm just not sure. I don't necessarily feel that I need to. Oh, well, well, if we just started with that, God probably would have said, it's okay then. (laughs) Had I understood you felt differently, I would have said something else. If you don't know me well, that's sarcasm. That's not the way God thinks about it. Friends, I want to say this lovingly, and I want to say this gently, and I want to say this pastorally, and I want to say this redemptively. God doesn't owe you anything. He's not indebted to you. He does not owe you to meet your demand of, of you, of him convincing you that his will is right for you, of him convincing you that his will is best or in some way just. God doesn't owe you to make you feel okay with obeying his command before you do. And God doesn't even owe you to make all things work out according to your will, according to your want or your wishes. The only thing that we are owed, none of us want. And we're living our whole life to avoid. But God, God is pursuing you to forgive you and cleanse you and to redeem you from your sin that your life might manifest and display a glory that you will be the most convinced of is far greater than anything you could have imagined or conceived of in yourself. And he is worthy of your trust and obedience. Jesus is worthy of your trust and your obedience. He is worthy of your whole life in full surrender to him. The third lesson. Jonah had to face his own death to learn the price of his rebellion but he didn't have to endure it. Jonah had to face his own death to learn the price of his rebellion, but he didn't have to endure it. I'm gonna say that one more time. You will have to face your own death to learn the price of your rebellion, but in Jesus Christ, you won't have to endure it. Amen? There is one who did endure death for sin for us. And hear me, this one, his name is Jesus Christ. He obeyed the Father, knowing the price of his obedience would be death on a cross. And the Bible tells us he willingly endured it for you. Willingly endured it for you. Only Jesus can relieve your tension with God because the cloaked judgment in your salvation was put on Jesus on the cross. God's not overlooked your sins, but in his forbearance and patience, he waited until he could put them on Jesus Christ. The judgment for your sin, when by faith you trust in Jesus, has already been executed and satisfied. Now God wants to apply the redemption to forgive, to cleanse, and to redeem. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. Until we die fully to self, we cannot live completely under Christ. As long as the parts of your heart and life remain under your own control, within the scope of your capability and control, you will not trust God to control those areas of your life. You know, so often we think that the things that we need to trust God for are the things that are outside of our control, the things that are beyond our ability. No, friends, you need to trust God for the things that you've got your fingers so deeply dug down down into and you're holding on to with white grip knuckles that you don't want to let go and let God have it. God owns both of those things. That's what it means. Salvation belongs to the Lord because when God saves you, he purchases you with his blood. You are his and he is yours. Friends, redemption in Jesus reveals our own death by faith in the hands of God where we find the sufficiency and security of our salvation is an eternal hope of glory. And the fourth lesson is this. The Lord invites you to call out to him and to find his steadfast love and his relentless grace to save. Hear me, friends. The situation of your rebellion does not have to dictate the outcome of your salvation. And with God, it never will. No matter where you are when God finds you, he always delivers you where he wants, not where circumstances put you. I'm gonna ask the worship team to return and as they're coming back, I'm gonna read you one more quote. This should be incredibly encouraging to all of us. The commentator says this, Jonah prays what he is capable of praying and no more. God accepts the prayer for what it is, a stiff but true expression of thanks for not drowning. Seems like a small thanksgiving for a big salvation, doesn't it? But let me tell you why that ought to encourage all of us today. Because you don't have to wait till the tension of your life dissipates with God. If you will call out to him today, he will hear you. And he's bigger than your problem, even if he is your problem. You don't have to pray a perfect prayer. You pray whatever is on your heart, but you pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will hear you and he will answer you and he will answer every prayer of yours the way he answers every prayer with the power that only he can bring to bear upon it. He and he alone is the one who saves. Why not today, friends? Why not today? If you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith in Jesus to receive his forgiveness, God is inviting you to receive his love and forgiveness. He will forgive you and cleanse you. He will redeem you. And you say, but, but, I've, got a, but I've got, I didn't say all your tension was gonna be gone. I just said now you're looking to the only one that can do anything about it. But he will save you today. Christian, the worst thing you can be doing right now is burying that tension with God. Dismissing it because it's just a hint of a problem. The smallest root 
will grow the greatest rebellion. Root it out and let the love and the grace and the joy of God replace it.